You've come to the right place. If you're a course creator looking to build more impact, income, and freedom, LMS Cast is the number one podcast for course creators just like you. I'm your guide, Chris Badgett. I'm the co-founder of the most powerful tool for building, selling, and protecting engaging online courses called Lifter LMS. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome back to another episode of LMS Cast. I'm joined by a very special guest, Kurt Von Annen. He's from mananumas.com. Kurt's a Lifter LMS user and he's also had a really cool experience by using it in quite different applications. One in the uh, corporate world and uh, under some brands that you'll recognize and then also for his own projects. And now he's been through a bunch of evolution as an e-learning professional that we'll get into his story. But first, Kurt, welcome to the show. Thanks, Chris. It's, it's, it's a pleasure to be here, man. I'm thrilled that we got this time to, to set aside and do this. Yeah, it's awesome. I've, uh, we've, our paths have crossed over the years um, you know, in the Lifter LMS Office Hours Mastermind and emails and just seeing you around and whatnot. It's always great to connect with the community, which is something, of course, we're big at over at Lifter LMS. But tell us about corporate e-learning. What were you doing with Lifter? Like, and what is your, how, how did you use training in the corporate space and who are these companies? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I listen to your podcast frequently and you know, I joined the mastermind that you host and I'm always intimidated because I'm not super, super technical. Like I'm a great user and I'm good at, at the strategy of, of implementing the use of the product. But like when I watch, you know, some of the other guys that, that jump on, you know, Jonathan and, and the other guys, they, they, they have a much firmer grasp of the coding and stuff. So, well, um, a lot of people me, don't know. I just want to add, like, I don't know how to write a single line of code, but I have a software company. So it's it's not always <laughs> knowing the tech super well isn't always the thing, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, for me, it was um, I was running an agency in New Mexico, and I was doing a lot of um, startups and and helping a lot of people uh, establish their brands out of Albuquerque, and it was it was going really good. So you had and a marketing doing, agency. Yeah, yeah. I was doing a lot of web stuff, social media stuff, and, and really pushing that stuff out. We started it at the height of the recession, and we didn't end up homeless, so I consider that a win. And uh, But I, I had been in the car business for a really long time on the service side of the industry, and when the economy crashed, it didn't make a lot of sense to stand there for 14 hours and make 30 bucks, right? So yeah. I, I wanted to figure out a way to reinvent myself, and so I wrote and published a book on service writing. And it did pretty well. It's a real easy read. And then I was doing this agency stuff. And then through all that, uh, that's how I made contact with Ducati. Ducati read the book. Uh, they thought the book was good and got in touch with me and asked me to write them a course on service writing and service managing that, that they could host as Ducati to their 166 dealers that were in Canada, United States, and Mexico. For and people who don't know, what is service writing and what is this, this expertise? So service writing uh, in, in its most basic form is, is a really easy job, but in practice, it's one of the most difficult that a car dealership or, or power sports dealer has. And that is like when you have a car and your car breaks. So let's say you, you just need an oil change, a tire rotation, your check engine lights on, you know, whatever. You, you go to the dealership and the guy that you talk to, the guy that you hand your keys to and get the work done, that's called a service writer. Okay. And then typically there's there's multiple service writers in a dealership and then there's a manager over them that kind of just makes sure that what they're writing and what they're promising for the day is actually going to get through the shop with the technicians yeah. and then there's 
then it becomes ballet on the back end. It, it, it becomes like having the right parts, um, charging the right labor amounts, uh, just, you know, getting things warranted and charged through the manufacturer, things that might be customer pay. And then it, it turns into a, a, like I said, a ballet. There's a lot of stuff in the background and that's where my expertise comes in. I show those places how to be the most efficient uh, at getting the work in and out. And then I also teach them how to deal with people and, you know, personality traits, communication styles, and how to sell the most without driving customers away. And if that all works, then we reduce turnover in the shop, meaning technicians don't keep looking for better shops to work in because this just became the best shop to work in. And so that's, that's kind of my, my thing. I love niches because like, we all think we understand something like, oh yeah, I take my car into the shop and somebody like, write some stuff down and then like I come back and it's ready and or maybe yeah. they call me and they find something else but it's actually like you said I'm sure a complicated ballet of like managing expectations we need time to diagnose the the person that does the work might find something um you know the person who does the work you want to keep them happy so they keep working there becoming a better and better mechanic yeah it's there's a lot that goes into it there, there's than, a more lot than we think, yeah. more than we think well and if you think back to like you and I are hopefully close to the same age group, I, th I think I, I'm a little I'm, older than you. I'm 41. Oh, well, then I'm a lot older than you. I'm 52. <laughs> okay. So uh, I think back to, you know, our youth and how they would, you know, guidance instructors, guidance counselors would look at someone in high school and go, well, you're probably not going to go to college. You might want to be a mechanic, you know, and there's right. this stereotype that's like you, you, if you're a mechanic because you weren't smart enough to be a lawyer, right? And that's nowadays, that's just not the case. I mean, these guys got to go to training. You wouldn't believe how much training a motorcycle technician has to take to be able to work on a Ducati, a BMW, a Kawasaki, and a, and a Yamaha. It's, well, it's one of my, one of my, like brain surgeons. One of my good friends in Alaska is a helicopter mechanic. He's highly trained. He helped me convert my diesel truck to run off of used vegetable oil. I actually drove around for a long time off of grease. It's called a grease car, whatever. Yeah, biodiesel. Yeah, it just this was actually straight. It's called SVO, straight vegetable oil. It wasn't even mixing, but it had this whole like thing where it heats up and everything. But um, I just as a mechanic, the guy was like, it's like watching Mozart play, just watching him like yeah. you know work under the hood, and and not not even just the helicopter stuff, but just stuff. And he was like teaching me and explaining all these systems. I'm like, wow, there's a lot going on here. There's the, it, it's a lot. Yeah. And if you think about it, like an automotive mechanic will have a specialty, like your friend might've been, well, he's a helicopter mechanic, but in most uh, automotive centers, a guy's really good at drivability, right? Is which is like how the car burns through fuel. And then other people are suspension specialists and other people are, you know, electricians or, or electronic specialists. And in the power sports field, a technician has to do it all. You have to be good at, you know, steering, chassis dynamics, you know, tires, brakes, suspension, uh, internal engine work, transmissions, the whole thing. And so, yeah, when I work with my power sports people, I know that I'm dealing with people that have to, they have to be able to transmit a lot of technical information, which usually, if they're really good at that, makes them not so good at interacting with customers. And so that's kind of creating that blend or teaching them about communication styles is one of the things that I really employ. That's cool. So what, what was it like, where does the um, LMS or the education technology come in? If there's, if you're working at Ducati and there's all these different dealerships and whatnot, are you traveling a lot? Are you doing like virtual meetings? Are you creating courses yeah. or training manuals? What are you doing? You are, you're asking one of the best questions possible 
actually. So um, I, I don't want to say I'm a forerunner or that, um, you know, the, the new mind in training and power sports, because I think that's given myself far too much credit. But they, they used to actually just travel and, and do small groups of 10, 12, you know, technicians or service riders and have these kind of workshops. And they would do them like at hotels, at different schools, you know, anywhere. And in fact, my last year working with Ducati, I traveled over 200 days that year. Wow. And for one person to leave a wife and two kids at home and just, you know, fly on 120 airplanes for a year, it, it, it's, it's not a great use of, of efficiency or budget. And so what I did with the online learning and, and how I introduced, I actually used Moodle at Ducati. That was my first, that was my first real e-learning experience, right? I jumped in with Moodle because it was open source and, and ran with that. And then when I went to Suzuki, I kind of upgraded and went to Lifter LMS. But um, for me, being able to take core material, like, like kind of best practices material and put it online, it at least gets the audience, you know, from, from here to here. Right. I, I need to get the average intellect or, or knowledge of the subject matter. I need to raise that level so that everybody's on a certain plane when they show up to class. Baseline. And if I can, yeah, if I can get if I can get everyone to that baseline, then when I when I do host the workshop, you know, it's not such a struggle to get to here. Right now, if everyone's already here, it's, it's just that next jump. So and it's so, kind of like blended learning. It's a, you're, it's yeah. not an either or you're like, let's get everybody the same page. And then we do the in-person stuff. Yeah. And the in-person stuff is so important. Like I, I keep trying to find ways to um, substitute some of that, like these zoom things that you, that you do with the masterminds and stuff that it's great. I can get um, right now I'm hosting technicians on zoom calls. I'll, I'll get 10 or 12, you know, different people on and, and we'll discuss things and it's good to have that interactivity with, the, with the users, um, but it's still not hands-on. So I still think that there's a need to every now and then, you know, have that mastermind real get together group where, where you get face to face and you do workshops and, and you, you know, overcome objections in person and stuff. And there, there's a lot to it, but I'm doing a, more and more online. The more I can reduce the travel and, and reduce that travel budget, the more I can expand what we've got. And once I record it and put it online, you know, that work is done and I can work on developing the next step rather than regurgitating the same step over and over and over again. Yeah. I mean, as a consultant, if you find yourself repeating yourself all the time, that's a perfect opportunity for a course. What, what was the um, journey to Lifter LMS or is this, are we at Suzuki at that point or how does that happen? Yeah. Well, I actually experimented with Lifter LMS on a Manana Nomas project before going to Suzuki. So, um, Moodle was a great proof of concept for me at, at Ducati because I was able to run a lot of people through it. But, yeah. you know, and I don't want to talk bad about product. If people like it, that's great. But it was, it was too much for me. Like the back end was a little confusing and I wasn't able to play enough with the interface to make it attractive. Yeah. Whereas I knew from my agency work that once I got into a WordPress platform, I could play with graphics and user interfaces and make things more pleasant for the user. So based on my comfort level with WordPress, I started focusing more on WordPress options. And so then I looked at, you know, some of the competitors to Lifter LMS, and then I found Lifter LMS. And, you know, if I'm just going to be honest with you, I think you responded to a question email of mine pretty quickly. And, yeah. um, you know, between you and, and customer service, and this was going back a few years, right? This was 2015, 2016. Yeah. Um, 
you know, the idea that there's somebody at the other end of the communication that's, that's there to help me or to point me in the right direction was, was a big plus. And so I downloaded that and I did the Manana No Mas build and I was ready to leave Ducati and be independent at that time. But then Suzuki called and made me an offer. And uh, I went to Suzuki and I ended up building some projects for them over the last three, four years. Wow. So what was the, was it more of the same like um, service training, service riding training or? Yeah, Suzuki was a lot different for me and it was interesting. And I don't know, maybe you would find this interesting as, as the application goes, but, you know, at Ducati, you know, they sell motorcycles and that's it. And, and it's a kind of a small team that runs the distributorship here in North America. And it takes care of the three countries, uh, Canada, Mexico, and uh, United States. Suzuki was completely different. They had, um, you know, a power sports branch was, was motorcycles and it did off-road, on-road and ATVs and all that stuff. Um, so that was cool. And then there's the Marine category, which is outboard motors, which is completely different than power sports. And then even though they don't sell cars in America anymore, I was in charge of the publications and training division for the automotive division. So like if there's a new recall or a new service process, we still had to support that. And so instead of working by myself in, in a little hole at, at a smaller, like really exclusive, awesome brand like Ducati, I got to work you know, on a team and manage a team of people. And that was a really good growth experience for me because then I dealt with, you know, an instructional designer. I had a publications guy. Uh, I had to proofread and do a lot of editing, which was, you know, usually I would do the writing and then publishing and then do editing post-event, right? And I, and I know that a lot of small businesses deal with that. You know, you end up making content and realizing you got to fix mistakes later. At Suzuki, it was really cool because we had systems and people and and the overhead available to make, you know, a near perfect product before publishing it. So it was a completely different work style for me. And uh, it really helped me grow and learn a lot. So uh, now, um, having left Suzuki, I've begun to rebrand and, and redo Manana No Mas again. And that'll be so I can help dealers directly instead of having to filter my content through an OEM distributorship. That's awesome. Before we get into that, what inside of a corporation, um, does, does the LMS sit on the internet or is that on a, like a private intranet? Oh, that's a, that's a very big question, Mr. Badgett. Um, <laughs> I'm I, will, just curious. I will tell you most, most of the companies that I have dealt with or that I have done, um, investigations with to, to try and push my own agenda. Yeah. Um, they, they typically will, they don't host it themselves, but they typically pay another company, which seems like an exorbitant fee to supposedly self-host this, this content, you know, on their servers. And yeah. then they'll link it through their mainframe server that they use for like their, you know, their business stuff. Right. So like they're typically their logistics, accounting, um, you know, uh, all their sales stuff is, is in their mainframe. And then typically these companies will have uh, some third-party training company that makes the content and hosts it securely on, on their internal servers. And then they link everything together. I see. That makes sense. I was just curious how it works because a lot of course creators are, you know, kind of doing courses for profit, just selling directly versus using yeah. it for internal training in a company. It's like a different use case. So yeah. I was just curious how people like how it's a little different. Well, and when you sit in on these IT meetings at these big companies, it's really interesting because a lot of them are having, you know, they're all talking about being agile companies and they're all talking about, you know, cloud hosting, cloud sharing and all the stuff that's going on. 
And then at the end of the day, you're sitting there thinking, I can make you, like for me as a trainer, I'm thinking, why are you guys paying $400,000 a year to host a website over here when for less than 10 grand a year, we could build and host an amazing learning platform for you that would still be secure, you know? So it's, you know, and and when I say secure, I, I mean like as secure as like any other major company that's been broken into and lost all their contact information, right? Yeah, there's no such thing as 100% secure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so when I look at it and when I look at the usage, so, um, you know, we had spoken, we started to talk about college use and stuff like that. But corporately speaking, I mean, even a big company, there's not as many um, active users as you think using these platforms month in, month out, month in, month out. I mean, I might have 3,000 users, you know, registered for a product. But based on, you know, the turn of the material and the content and stuff, I might only have a couple hundred active users in a month. Right. And so that was one of the real attractive things that brought me to Lifter in the first place. Because a lot of companies had these, these billing examples based on usage licenses. And when I tried to figure out what my budget was going to be to run, you know, an enterprise platform learning system, it was really hard to go to my bosses and say, okay, well, this is how much money we're going to spend in 2017 or 2018 or 2019. And then, you know, trying to forecast growth and stuff was really difficult. Yeah, I get that. And if I know what you mean, like if the LMS is charging you based on users and you've got 3000 users, but only a hundred active, it's counterproductive. It just doesn't, the model doesn't work or you're, yeah, you're, then, you're being overcharged for how much you are actually using. And, and, it and then Go ahead. the obstacle comes up like in automotive, motorcycle, power sports. If there's like a, a recall that comes out or a technical service bulletin, you go, man, we really got to train the people about this. And you make this, this new thing and you put it up. Well, then all of a sudden you've got a surge of 3000 people taking new content in, over a month or six week period, you know, and yeah. then that spikes your billing like crazy. And then you're, you know, you're trying to plan these budgets in advance. It was really difficult. Whereas self-hosting on Lifter, I was able to consolidate, you know, the whole idea of billing into something that was manageable. Yeah. And you limit the, I mean, you have a more concrete, you know, what your expenses are. Yeah. Yeah. So what was the genesis of Manana Namas? You said you, tr- you first, like, how did that website start? Uh, you know, when we say, how did it start? That's, that's kind of a funny thing. So Manana Namas, and, and I'm not Hispanic or anything like that, but I had an agency in New Mexico. And when I worked with people, I had a company name that was based on my name. So it was Von Anand Designs and PR. Right. And then I thought to myself, the bigger this grows, someday I might want to sell this thing. And it's hard to sell something that's got your own name on it. And so I started thinking I need to change the name. And then the customers I were helping, and you talked about working with VSBs, very small businesses. Yeah. Um, I was working with a lot of those. I mean, I, had a, I was working with the Economic Development Center in um, South Valley there in Albuquerque, and they would refer all their people to me. And so you would give them tasks. You would say, okay, I'm going to build the framework, you know, in WordPress for you guys to have your first website, but, you know, do you need a logo? And they, oh, no, we can do it. Okay, well, do you need this? Oh, we can do it. Well, I need your about me stuff. Or I need your about us, you know, text to put into the site. And then you'd schedule the next meeting, and then I would have all my stuff done, and they wouldn't have anything done. And, right. you know, this would push on for meeting and meeting and meeting. And then everything was always a rush. Like they would put something off for three months and then give you two days notice to finish the project. And uh, I lost my cool one day. And I was, you know, I, I said, I said, these people never have their act together. You know, if they're not vested in their own success, I can't continue to 
beat myself to death over this, right? Like, mañana no mas, there's no tomorrow. They got to get this stuff done today. And the guy running the Economic Development Center, Tony, he goes, that would be a really good name for your business. And so we, we, we reserved mañana no mas right then and there. And then um, when I took the job with Ducati, I, I knew I should have shut down Manana Nomas, but I, in, in deep in my mind, I was like, it's just too good of a name and a story to give up. So I kept it and it really became more like a travel blog as I went to Italy and Spain and France and, and worked with uh, different things in power sports. I thought it would be really cool to develop that. And then I got fat. And uh, that's why you see a lot of the training material that's on Manana Nomas now is about personal development, losing weight, being fit. And it's about, it's not about competing in Mr. Universe. It's about being fit enough to finish a work day and not be exhausted. This is yeah. one of the things, well, there's a lot of reasons why I wanted to interview you, but um, yeah, you do more than like business, like helping businesses run more efficiently with like service writing and stuff is one thing, but you also have this whole health transformation thing going on. Yeah. What, what was the inciting incident that made you decide, you know what, I'm ready to make a change or was it, was there like a moment or was it more of a just like, slow crawl out of uh, some uh, a bad spot you got yourself into? I got to be really unhappy working for the Italian brand, not because of the brand itself, but the situation I had allowed myself to get into. I was traveling way too much and I was working way too hard and they didn't have the budget at the time to bring in the help that I needed. And I had committed to the dealer network that we were going to do all this awesome stuff. Yeah. And, um, I don't know if you know enough about the Manana Nomas, you know, mindset, but I have never missed a deadline or gone over budget. And I treat that the same corporately. Like at Suzuki, I didn't miss deadlines or, or go over budget. At Ducati, I don't do that. And I, I believe that what, whatever I commit to, I got to make happen. Yeah. And so my last year at Ducati, I made that commitment. And then I realized, man, I bit off a lot. And uh, I had a corporate credit card and could eat and drink whatever I wanted. And I did. And okay. I, got, I got really big. Um, I had a hard time fitting on the airplane once I was flying yeah. from Florida back to California. And so they put you on a little airplane to go from Daytona to Atlanta. And I was like, man, I'm not too comfortable in my seat. This is right. And then from Atlanta to California, um, this horrifically obese woman sat next to me Yeah, and I was in the middle chair and she was on the aisle seat and, uh, her thigh was squishing under the armrest and squishing up against me. And yep. by the time we got to California and she got out of the chair, when I stood up, sweat and perspiration was dripping down the inside of my pant leg, you <laughs> okay. know, from just being great. And right there, I was like, I'm not doing this anymore. <laughs> right. This has to change. And, uh, as, as, and some people go, Oh, well, that's really disgusting. Or that's a really horrible story that you just shared. But that was the moment, right? You said, what's the moment? How long ago was that? That was, uh, that was, near the end of 2016, I think it was like June or July. And then I took the job at Suzuki. I moved down to Southern California and I tried to break my bicycle back out of the garage, but I was still too fat to ride it. And um, my wife and I joined a thing called the transformation camp. It was okay. like one of those lose 20 pounds in six weeks. Okay. And so yeah. I lost the 20 pounds in six weeks. I signed up for another six weeks. I signed up for another six weeks. I ended up dropping uh, just over 60 pounds. Wow. And then I, th I hit my goal weight. I was like, man, if I get down to, you know, 205 pounds, I'm going to be pretty happy about that. And then, uh, man, I got back into bicycling and then I was doing road biking and then mountain biking and I did BMX with my son. I started running Spartan races and warrior dashes. And it just, I was like, 
you know, I was approaching 50 years old and I'm like, at 50, I'm doing stuff that I couldn't do when I was 30. Yeah. Like, and I, I used to race motorcycles semi-professionally. I used to road race and travel around the country. And even with road racing, I wasn't as fit as I am now. Like the mountain biking I was doing the day I broke my collarbone, I was hitting PRs on every trail there was, Double <laughs> rock gardens. I was having a blast. And so, you know, you come out of that with a broken collarbone, you're like that, no worries. It was still a great day. That's awesome. I love that. It's so true. Like you can get in better shape as an older person than you were at your quote prime age or whatever. It's totally, totally possible. Yeah, it is. It's pretty bizarre now. So, and, and I'm, and I am one of those gadget people, right? So I've got the computers on the bikes. Uh, I've got the heart rate monitor that I wear. And like when I go mountain biking, I literally just play with the heart rate if I'm riding by myself and I'll say, okay, I'm going to stay at 164 to 168, you know, for this next 3000 feet of climb. And wow. I'm surrounded by mountains, so I'm able to regulate that. And, and I've been able to become a pretty decent athlete, you know, in my 50s, which is kind of weird. Yeah. But it's That's fun. awesome. Well, more, more power to you. That's, that's really cool. What, um, like on the Manana Nomas side, what is the discipline mine? Mm. So it's one of uh, 14 courses that we've got currently. And so some courses are specifically designed for business, like key performance indicators or uh, setting goals, things like that. And that's more business oriented. But the discipline mind is it's part of the content that I have that's for personal development. And so many people like that transformation camp I told you that I went to. I was the only person in my group that went through the whole thing and then didn't gain the weight back, like that rebound weight gain. And what did so, you have that they didn't? I think I was just so disgusted with myself that I was never going to go backwards again. Yeah. I don't, I don't know what makes that. So, so for me, um, I looked at how they succeeded in the first place and it was through community, right? So when they're part of the group for the six weeks, everybody's pushing each other for the six weeks. And then when the six weeks is up, they go home and they're like, uh, I don't feel like running today or I don't feel like doing 25 burpees in between commercials. Right. <laughs> and so I, I think that that's where some of that gets lost. And then there's people like me. Um, I'm pretty active online. I'm active socially. Right. I've, I've got a pretty decent following on Facebook and Twitter and stuff. And so I interacted with a lot of people that were active and then I started interacting with people at the office at Suzuki that were active with the mountain biking. And again, it was, I think it was the community that helped drive that. So one of the things I like about using Lifter LMS is the social learning aspect. And so my goal is um, the discipline mind and, and goal 365 and some of those other courses that I have, um, like embrace the process is another one like the, like the discipline mind. It's all about, it's great content. But if I can plug people into the community side of it and they can begin to edify each other and build each other up, uh, not like a Facebook group that can maybe get some trolls in it and stuff, but something that's in the site where, where I know it's moderated and that, you know, it, it'll be people building each other up like minded. I think that that's really going to help. And so the discipline mind is all about that. It's like how to enjoy the fruits of saying no to certain things or how to enjoy the fruits of saying yes to things you need to say yes to. Like it's, it's great to say no to something good in search of something better. And that's a lot of what the discipline mind is about. That is cool. Who's your, who's the ideal customer for that or learner? You know, it's twofold for me because to me, um, fitness and business are intertwined. They're not separate things. 
And, and I think that's why I've been kind of confusing people a little bit. And I try to, I'm trying to clear that up. To me, it's about physical fitness that leads to physical fitness. If I'm too tired at the end of a work day to enjoy my family, or if I'm too tired halfway through a work day to, to really kill it at the three o'clock meeting in the conference room with the vice president, well, then I'm failing. And so I think that people need that, that push. So, you know, if people are struggling to get through their work day, they're a great candidate. If someone is stuck in the same position for more than two and a half, three years at a corporation that has turnover and opportunity, then, then they're a great candidate. Uh, you know, I did that John Maxwell training and that's the stuff that really fires me up and gets me to push people. Um, and it's about adding value to people. It's about helping them get to the next step or the next stage. And I'm not saying that everyone that becomes a client of Manana Nomas is going to be a CEO someday, but it's, it's about getting people, it's a, loving on people enough to help them realize their self-value and that they've been telling themselves no for too long and that the next level is available for them. They just need to pursue it. And then show that. how to build, build goals one step at a time to get there. I love that. I know. I mean, there's this saying like you got a niche, you got to focus, but I also believe in living an integrated life, health, wealth, relationships, they all work together. And like the whole work-life balance thing. I mean, I I totally get it. And I've had it struggles with that, but if you really love your work and your, and your life and it's kind of integrated together, like who cares? Like it's, they work off each other and definitely the fitness and the health is like, if you want to be a top performer and you're, letting that slide that's a serious handicap yeah the the mountain biking has been really interesting socially and and you know i'll say politically around because people say to me oh hey you want to do this on thursday night i go no i I mountain bike on thursday night so they're like can we reschedule that for another time and people are like you're gonna blow me off to go mountain biking and i'm like yeah it's in the schedule. Like, that's what I do. You know, Saturday morning is road biking. Thursday night is mountain biking, you know, and, and it's, and it becomes part of the schedule. And when I talk to people to say, well, I don't have the time for that, or I don't, it's, it's no, you have the time. What you mean is that you, you didn't prioritize properly. And so I've been really working with people about how to prioritize their, their time better so that they, they can find the balance to do the things they want to do. You know, a lot of times it re- requires, you know, putting this thing in the glove box or uh, turning off the TV. But, you know, um, we've got an amazing amount of time to get things done. It's, I just don't think people are aware that they have it. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm, I'm a pretty scheduled guy too. Like I, I have a pretty elaborate morning routine or whatever. And like every morning, first thing I do is a 5k every single day. And sometimes that's walking. Sometimes that's running or sometimes I'll blow it off and do an hour of on the road and on the bicycle or whatever. But it's like non-negotiable. Like even my, my family knows like I'll be gone. I'm usually gone before they're even awake. So it's, and that's some of my best thinking time. If I didn't have that and I'm also yep. learning, I'm listening to podcasts and things like this. Maybe you listening right now are exercising. That's a total hack. Like I have yeah. 10 years of having this morning routine, like listening to people about business and health and all kinds of stuff that has transformed how I think and how I operate. Yeah, I went to the bone conducted headphones so that I can still hear the environment. And what so, is, oh, that's cool. What is that? Uh, gosh, where do I have them? They're over there. <laughs> They're uh, they 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 squeeze your head right over your temple, and it pushes the sound through your bones. So there's and nothing so, going into your ear cavity. So, so there's nothing in my ear cavity. So when I'm when I'm road biking or mountain biking, I can still hear other people on the trail or hear cars coming. So I'm still aware of my environment. 
but I can hear the music of the podcast. And nice. so if, if I'm drilling myself on a road ride and I need to maintain cadence, I'll listen to Daft Punk. But mm -hmm. if I want to learn something, I'll listen to podcasts. And I listen to an awful lot of business podcasts while I'm exercising. Wow, that's awesome. But you can still hear everything around you. It's pretty cool. I should get some of those. I've definitely had a few cars sneak up on me. And I'm walking the dogs too, so I'm managing them. And sometimes yeah. either or a runner will come up behind me or something. Um, you mentioned leadership, John C. Maxwell. I remember when I became first became a manager because I was good at my job. I realized this is when I lived in Alaska and I managed a, hel a sled dog tour business that you can only get to by helicopter. And all of a sudden, like, it's, there's a lot of risk. There's a lot of intensity with that kind of work. But I went through this whole journey of like, man, I really need to figure out leadership and management. I read John C. Maxwell. I've probably yeah. read a thousand business books on business, but also leadership and management. Um, <clears throat> what what are some key counterintuitive takeaways you have around leading and managing people that the person out there, if they're, let's say they're an expert and a good operator or something, but they, they're, they're trying to become a better manager or leader or maybe build a team yeah. to help them. What, what should they key into? Well, and I think I talk best from personal experience. I can remember when I was young, I was a manager uh, at UPS uh, loading the outbound trucks. And I can remember when I, they first made me manager, I was a kid and I was like, you know, oh, I'm going to tell these guys what to do. And I was mm -hmm. really good at loading the trucks. Right. So, I mean, uh, I held the record at, in the Willow Grove hub for a long time on how to load trucks. So I'm, I'm really into it. Right? It's like mm -hmm. Tetris, but in real life. And then, you know, all these other people would come in and they didn't have the same, you know, passion or drive to play Tetris in real life. They just wanted to do the five and a half hours and go home. So, you know, I'm barking orders at him, right? Hey, that, that box fell off the belt. This is, read that zip code, throw that, you know, you know, build the wall this way. And I'm yelling at people and, and they're just like, God, this guy's an idiot. I can't wait till this, I can't wait till this shift is over, you know? And I didn't realize then, you know, how bad I was at managing people, but I, I wasn't bad at managing. I was managing great, but I wasn't leading anybody. Like nobody yeah. wanted to follow me. Yeah. And so one of the things that, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that John Maxwell says, but one thing that really sticks out to me is, you know, if, if you find yourself going somewhere and, and nobody's following you, well, then you're not leading anybody, you know, you're mm -hmm. just going for a walk. And so I'm like, okay, so who is following? Like, who is, who am I pouring into? Who am I mentoring? Who am I bringing alongside of me? And that's been a huge transition in how I look at running teams. And so like at Suzuki, I didn't want to just be a guy that sat in a cubicle and kind of babysat four other cubicles and told people what to do. I wanted to make sure I became a working manager and understood like, Hey, how does articulate storyline really work? Or how does this really work? Or how, how can we work together on this and take this to the next level? And then by empowering other people and adding value to other people or giving them training in areas that might've been their deficiencies, I was able to build a really solid team. And, and I think that that's the difference, right? So when you can add value to other people and lead them and they, and they want to follow you. Um, you know, when I left Suzuki, that was one of the weirdest transitions ever. I actually had two employees write recommendations on my LinkedIn page. And yeah. I, and I had never seen that before. I had never seen employees writing recommendations for bosses that had left, you know? So I was like, well, I must've done something right. I mean, something about the leadership training I had at John Maxwell or the training that I give to others, it, it, must have resonated in a way that made enough sense that these employees recognized that that was, that was something that I would find value in. 
So it, it was, it was kind of touching. Can you tell us if somebody has a job in a corporate and they're thinking about moving to operating on their own, like you've made that transition. Mm. What, what has, what do you recommend with that? Like, like how did that work? And then oh. what are some key takeaways of to make it not so scary or at least set yourself up for success if you're thinking about it? There is so much at play in that question, Chris. That's not even fair to ask me that. That's, <laughs> that's, that's a tough one. So I will tell you when I started Manana Nomas originally, when, when, it was, when it was Vanana Designs and PR in New Mexico, that was at the height of the recession. And that was pure bootstrap survival stuff, man. That was... I didn't care if I slept or didn't sleep. I would eat peanut butter and jelly because I couldn't afford to buy something on the road. And, you know, I just wanted to something better than beans in a crock pot for my kids. You know, right. um, that, that was rough. That was, and that was, you know, taking any meeting at any time for any benefit. And, and it was a struggle. And I don't recommend that for anybody. I, I don't because that, that desperation led to really poor leadership on my part. Um, I mean, we survived, but I don't know that we really thrived, right? Um, this time's completely different. Um, I made sure that I understood my niche. I made sure that I understood my customer first. Uh, I built a product um, that's not perfect, but it was good enough to launch and start getting people through it. Um, and now I'm able to do a proof of concept. I've, I've beta tested with a couple of dealers that I've put in and it was like, hey, I'm going to give you guys a smoking hot deal on this, but here's the flip side. You know, you're going to become a modern day you know, case study that I'm going to publicize. So I got to make sure you're okay with this. You know, we're going to share your numbers. We're going to share your successes. We're going to share your challenges, but you get access to me and, and the program, you know, for next to nothing. And, you know, taking the time to set it up that way, I think is what's going to really lend it to success. Uh, I also built my network pretty high before I went independent. Um, I have access to about 3000 motorcycle dealerships now that people know who I am. They know my name. Um, I published a book in 2007 that lends me credibility. So there's all these things like I have a second book that's coming out in a couple of months and that's called service writing in the gray. And the first book was service writing in black and white. So I'm very focused on that niche. Uh, and, and it's understanding the niche, the customer building the network and then having a product to actually sell and push. I think is really important. I don't think people are prepared when they, when they think about owning their own business and leaving a corporate, you know, safety net They They don't really think it all the way through. They don't think about, well, what is the product and how am I going to distribute the product and how am I going to get the customer and who is my customer and how am I going to approach that customer? Because in a corporate environment, you know, they might see customers coming and going, but they're really not aware of the marketing or the expense that was made to get that customer in the first place. So they, they really have to, have a realistic expectation before they jump in. That's awesome. Any quick advice on if somebody, I think writing a book is a great idea, especially if you're in like a, a niche within a niche within a yeah. niche or whatever. Like yeah. how did that go down for you? Uh, you know, I'll be honest. I was in the car business for so long on the service side and I was really frustrated that I, I just didn't really, uh, I didn't enjoy it. I mean, I was good at it, but I didn't enjoy it. I worked at yeah. a lot. I worked at way too many dealerships because I would get ticked off and go to the next one. <laughs> and um, I couldn't sleep. And finally, I wrote the book kind of like I didn't understand. I, I didn't know how I could go from one service center to another that was struggling with being profitable and then making it extremely profitable and then seeing like a lack of culture shift in other ways. 
So I wrote a book about it. It's a really short book, uh, but I wrote the book and went that direction. And uh, I was surprised. I didn't think anybody was going to buy it. I self-published it. You know, I didn't even get a real publisher. I just, I self-published it. And I thought, well, if it sells 10 or 15 copies, at least I exercised it, right? I got that demon out of my brain. But then people started buying it. And I, I think we've sold something like 5,000 copies already. Oh, wow. And I mean, it's, and yeah. it's, but it's so specific, right? So, so my subject matter is in a real niche. It's, it's a, I mean, how many service writers are there, right? I mean, how many people do you know personally that make their living selling oil changes at a Ford dealership? And so that's my audience and that's who's been buying it. And then manufacturers have bought it, you know, like Ducati bought the book and then distributed it to all their dealerships. Um, other brands have bought the book and distributed to their dealerships. And it's, it's been really interesting. And, you know, in the book, I, like I said, I wrote the book out of frustration. So there's a lot of things in there that really aren't super positive. It'll talk about who owns a dealership, right? Usually it's a sales oriented person. So you can't expect a sales oriented person to understand the investment it takes to have a really great service department, right? Because yeah. for a lot of dealers, it's the a cost center. Yeah. The service department, they look at it as a cost center instead of a profit center. Yeah. And I see it as um, the service department is what keeps your business alive after the sale right? The sale is a little bit, I make this much money selling a motorcycle. I make this much money maintaining that motorcycle for the next 10 years. And so getting dealers to understand that the back end fixed operations is where the real profit structure is, has been a, a really fun, fun journey. That's but awesome. yeah, to, to, to write a book and, and establish yourself as some kind of expert, I, I don't think there's a better way to really do it. You know, that's and a big business teach, card. Yeah. Thing. And when I teach, I give people a copy of the book and they're like, oh, I didn't realize you're the guy that wrote this. You know, it's just <laughs> right. that, you know, you're just laying down more stamps of authority on what you teach. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. Well, any, uh, any just words you have about lifter LMS, like what, what, how it's served you or, um, just any comments about that software, you know, and I, I've hit you with this on email before. So, um, I, it, it's fantastic. And I don't tell people anything other than it's fantastic, but you have to prepare yourself because as simple as it looks, there's a lot of plugins and stuff that, that you could get. And so like when you sign up for the universe or the in infinity bundle, and you can take care of how much things cost and put links in the description if you want, yeah. but there's different bundles with different packages. And my mistake when I first signed up was I, I put in all those plugins and I started trying to figure out how I was going to use everything. And that, that was the wrong direction to take. What I should have done was, yeah, you know, get the bundle, but then, you know, only plug in the things that I really saw a need for and then grow my, my understanding or my expertise of using it, you know, stair-step it, you know, in a way that made sense. And now I've gotten to, a, uh, you know, it's years down the road and now I'm plugging in things like Groundhog and all kinds of stuff and making the site more interactive for my users. But that's not a requirement up front. A requirement up front is, you've got a course or you've got material you want to share with an audience, Lifter LMS in its, in its base form does that. And then you've got the, the packages that really help, you know, edify the user and build up a support structure that gets them up to speed relatively quickly. And then they can plug in the other stuff, you know, as they want to improve it or, or raise the level. I like but that. Yeah. Keep it simple and it evolves. It can grow it, with you over time. So amazing. I mean, I've built samples for other companies and I've used the, 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 you know, your, your free version, right? Your freemium version. And I'm like, Hey, I'm going to build you a quick course just so you can see how it would work. And then I tell them, 
when you're ready to pull the trigger on this project, you know, there's a package we're going to get for you and it's going to give you access to so many more, you know, interactive points of, of touch with your, with your users. And I think that when you sell it that way, it makes it easier because they, they, they're visual. They want to see something work, but then, you know, you tell them, Hey, this can grow and, and expand as you grow and expand. And it doesn't cost. I mean, I've, I've got, I wrote down some examples in my notes here, but I've got examples from different companies, anywhere from 90 to $400,000 a year to run a learning management system. And when I look at those numbers and then compare to what I'm spending with Manana Nomas, um, well, it's no wonder that I'm in a position to become profitable more quickly because I haven't, I haven't expended myself. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, Kurt, I want to thank you for coming on the show. It's been awesome to catch up and learn more about your story. And I find your story inspiring, and I'm sure the listener does on a lot of levels. Uh, Kurt, I hope so. Kurt's at mananomas.com. Any other final words for the people or places to go to connect with you? Uh, well, the catch line is get it done yesterday, right? <laughs> so manana nomas, get it done yesterday. Uh, that, that's my big thing. Don't sit around. Make yourself deadlines. Give yourself budgets. Don't exceed deadlines. Don't exceed budgets. And focus on the next step or the next level that you can get to. And, uh, you know, I'm all about the leadership training and building these LMSs for other people. But, you know, my core, my happiness comes when I can help service departments, you know, in the power sports industry expand. And it's, it all seems possible sitting at home doing this with you guys. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Kurt. And uh, we'll have to do this again sometime. Yeah, cool, brother. I like it. And that's a wrap for this episode of LMS Cast. I'm your guide, Chris Badgett. I hope you enjoyed the show. This show was brought to you by Lifter LMS, the number one tool for creating, selling, and protecting engaging online courses to help you get more revenue, freedom, and impact in your life. Head on over to lifterlms.com and get the best gear for your course creator journey. Let's build the most engaging results getting courses on the internet. Mm -hmm.